Hello, Dementia Matters podcast listeners. Thank you for returning to the podcast during this COVID-19 pandemic. I know you have a lot on your mind, and despite being at home, I know life is not easy. It's an understatement to say we are living in an extraordinary time, but whatever you want to call this ongoing experience, it is asking extraordinary things of us. And life doesn't just stop because of it, which is why this podcast continues. I want to pivot here on Dementia Matters and address important issues affecting those with cognitive impairment and those without during this COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. I cannot cover all the issues and frankly shouldn't. I encourage you to go to trusted sources for specific information, such as the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, your state and local health department websites, and the Alzheimer's Association. You can also find resources on our website at adrc.wisc.edu, that's adrc.wisc.edu, and that of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Institute at wai.wisc.edu. For other interesting and important stories on the COVID-19 pandemic, I would recommend my colleague at UW Health, Dr. Jonathan Kohler of the Surgery Set Podcast, who has a special series called The Frontlines of COVID. We will include these links to all these resources in our show notes. For those of you affected by Alzheimer's disease or any cause of cognitive impairment, you know better than anyone that it takes a community to care for those affected and to work on the front lines of treatment, prevention, and cure. What we face with COVID-19 is no different. We all are needed in this fight, and I thank you for whatever it is that you're doing. Take care and be safe. My guest today on Dementia Matters is Dr. Steve Barzi. Dr. Barzi is a professor of medicine and a clinician educator who has worked in the areas of general geriatric care, memory care, and sleep disorders with a special focus on sleep issues in later life over the past 25 years. He has developed a number of new models of care for optimizing the care of older persons, in particular geriatric telemedicine, teledementia care, home-based primary care, and sleep education programming. He also dedicates time in creating curricula and educational products that support competency-based education for many different healthcare disciplines. He regularly speaks to community groups as well as groups of healthcare professionals on a a range of age-related healthcare topics and adult sleep topics. Welcome back, Dr. Steve Barzi, to Dementia Matters. Hi, Nate. Thanks. Uh, I appreciate being part of this uh, process and uh, look forward to uh, trying to educate the listeners a little bit about um, the topic of uh, telemedicine. And I really appreciate your time today. I know you're a busy person in general, and even more so during this COVID-19 pandemic. And it's because of this pandemic and the quick transformation health systems have made to telemedicine that I'm interviewing you today. So on today's program, I want us to focus on telemedicine, what it is, and specifically how our audience members can maximize their visits with their provider. So to begin, let's start with the basics. What is telemedicine and what are the different forms? Yes. So telemedicine is actually a broad array of different um, tools, really, um, means by which a, a healthcare professional can interact with a patient when it's not in a face-to-face exchange. Uh, so there are um, the standard telemedicine types of services, which most people are uh, aware of, uh, which would include things like uh, a provider, a physician, or a 
phys- an advanced uh, practice provider, such as a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant, uh, who might be connecting with the patient from one site to a, a different site, which could be across um, across the state. It could be actually across state lines. There are many, many ways by which this can happen. And in those types of exchanges, it's um, frequently uh, incorporated with video. And so that the person who is um, sitting in the room um, visiting with the health provider will see a screen, which will have a health provider on the screen, and they will be talking uh, through uh, whatever speakers or uh, audio system are available. Um, in some um, situations, it will be going to the home. In some situations, the patient will have come to a local clinic uh, or something like a clinic where they are then connecting to the provider there. Uh, so that's the standard telemedicine that people think about. But telemedicine also can include things like a telephone call. Ironically, uh, we now, in the setting of COVID-19, uh, are really trying to protect our patients from exposures that might make them ill. And so increasingly, health providers are calling patients and having uh, visits, uh, so to speak, much more so than a standard, uh, I have a question and here's a response. Um, it may be, uh, how are you doing? And, and a full interview just like would occur in a face-to-face exchange. And, uh, and then um, uh, there may be a discussion about what the treatment options are or what the management might be for a condition like, say, diabetes or high blood pressure or the like. And then there will be an education provided by that provider to the patient and maybe family members that will also be sitting in on that interaction. Um, So it it can be a video uh, exchange, as I talked about. It can be a telephone exchange. There are even other means of telemedicine that now exist. Um, People can, uh, through uh, web-based programs, they can access urgent care uh, or emergency types of services. Uh, and um, so someone in the middle of the night on a Saturday night starts developing symptoms. They're not sure how to interpret those symptoms. They're not obviously so severe that they would require a call to 911. And they might uh, access uh, a portal through a healthcare system where the healthcare system says at any point in time, you can contact this, um, this particular um, service uh, it might be a video. Um, it might just be a, a exchange by um, type typing, um, and they can get a, a response to here's what's going on. Um, there's even um, means by which you can do what's called store and forward, where like uh, let's say a dermatologist. Um, wants to assess a person's skin lesions, and there might be a way by which a, a photo is taken, it's uploaded onto some secure um, a web portal, uh, and then the dermatologist can assess that and respond back to the patient. So there's a whole wide array. Um, the last comment I'll make, which is actually quite um sophisticated now are increasingly we're providing uh, acute care services, uh, what we call hospital at home or hospital in home, where patients might be seen in an emergency room and then sent back to home and they will receive um, care in the home environment. And in those settings, uh, telemonitoring occurs whereby devices might be set up where people can have vital signs and other parameters tracked um, and their condition can be monitored over time. So this is a pretty wide array 
of uh, services when we talk about telemedicine. And as someone who has been at the front line, really, of telemedicine in the VA system, you know, what do you see are the benefits of this compared to an in-person visit? Sure. So we, clearly in the present uh, environment where this COVID-19 viral um, epidemic is occurring and affecting lots and lots of individuals, it's a way by which um, we can continue to deliver health care um, but not have that patient exposed to the potential risks of coming into a hospital setting or into a clinic setting where they might be exposed to someone who has or is a carrier for that virus. So this is kind of a a safety um, type of an approach, uh, clearly. And telemedicine uh, for what I do in the VA is particularly uh, helpful for patients who might live three, four hours away from this VA site And instead of having to travel or uh, have a family member accompany them to travel uh, three, four hours in one direction to come in and sit down and meet with a provider for a half hour to an hour, uh, all of that travel and transportation is cut out. And so uh, someone who might not normally be able to travel uh, long distances, maybe because they have an illness that makes it hard for them to travel. Um, can now get these services. Um, They can get services through uh, a primary care provider. They can receive services through a consultant, and especially the consultants where they're not necessarily always available in rural environments. Now, all of a sudden, if someone needs to see a consultant who isn't available in their hospital system, in their town, or even in their county, they can access those kinds of consulting services through telemedicine approaches. Um, it's also convenient from the sake uh, that sometimes patients will have these uh, telemedicine um, services delivered directly into their homes. And so, for example, if someone has significant mobility problems where it's hard for them to get uh, into a car and travel or it's hard for them to move about within the hospital or the clinic setting, now all of a sudden we can deliver some of these kinds of services um, in their own home, possibly with them sitting on their couch uh, or in their recliner. So the, all that sounds wonderful. Um, benefits also can be uh, that, as I mentioned, sometimes urgent care services can be accessed at off hours uh, after the clinic might normally close or in uh, a weekend time frame or possibly during a holiday. And so again, then you don't have to automatically uh, go to the emergency room for all of these types of services. Um, so there are those benefits. There's actually a number of other benefits too, but um, but those are some that come to mind. And those are those are a lot of benefits. I, I wonder what you think are the downsides to telemedicine. For instance, are there things that patients can't get from a telemedicine visit that they would need uh, from an in-person visit? Certainly. So telemedicine, as I said in the beginning, is a tool. It's one approach by which we can deliver health care to patients. So offhand, you can just think of if someone has, for example, um, abdominal pain uh, and it's sudden in the onset and um, and even if they were going to try to set up some kind of a, uh, a secure connection with a healthcare provider through a telemedicine um, approach, that provider 
may not be able to do a, a basic abdominal examination to determine, is this appendicitis? Is this uh, something going on with the stomach? You know, what is going on? So some aspects of physical examination um, are not available. And so some types of health problems may not be best served through this approach. Um, some other things. So telemedicine is an evolving field. And although some people have been using it for a long while, as far as health providers, with the recent um, epidemic that has occurred with the COVID-19 virus, there's a large group of healthcare providers now that have never done telemedicine before. And this is now becoming the maybe the primary or only means by which they're going to be able to reach out to their patients. So telemedicine is, uh, is an art. And as with many other kinds of services that can be delivered, some people may be better equipped and better informed about how to interview an individual through telemedicine, how to use the technology appropriately, what to do if the technology starts to fail, which is a challenge that can happen um, sometimes on the patient side, sometimes it happens on the provider side. So uh, sometimes having more novice providers delivering telemedicine might not deliver the optimal service. Uh, Steve, in your experience, does Medicare or Medicaid cover uh, telemedicine or is this something that they haven't historically covered? So for many, many years, up until very recently, Medicare was covering specific types of telemedicine exchange. And the, um, uh, and CMS, that is the, with the name for Medicare and another group, um, which is called HRSA, which is involved with, um, a lot of rural healthcare. Both of those agencies were involved with, um, providing, um, reimbursement for uh, specified types of services. So what were those services in the past? They would be, if someone lived in a rural environment, and that would have to be defined by very specific criteria, and in that rural environment, they did not have access to certain types of consultants, then telemedicine services could be delivered from a, me a major medical center or from a hospital system to a smaller clinic setting uh, that might be in their own home community. And because it was going from, uh, going into a rural environment, then actually the cover, the coverage would be just like if they were being seen face to face. Um, and, uh, and then there are certain, um, insurance payers that have been very progressive and usually very large health systems, um, a place called Kaiser Permanente out in um, the West, for example, or Geisinger, where they have created means by which they will cover these telemedicine services because they see the the convenience for the patient. They see the value to the health system. They see the, um, uh, the way it fits into the bigger health system profile. So, in the past, there were those selected types of services that were covered. Presently, 
with the um, concern about patients not being able to access their their doctors because the clinics are closed or because uh, there are very significant restrictions being placed on who comes into the clinics or patients who don't want to go to the emergency room for something that's not an emergency service. Uh, the federal government and CMS have provided very recent guidance that have opened up the services to almost all health providers. And they've taken away some of those stipulations about rural care or some of the kinds of things that were previously not covered. Telephone services historically have not been covered by Medicare. So if a patient calls in and talks to their health provider, um, that's kind of considered part of the bundle as far as being in that patient, in that provider's clinic, but it was never reimbursed or it was reimbursed at a very minimal amount. But recently, those telephone services are now being reimbursed at a, um, a more fair amount, I'll say, to health providers. Additionally, um, now the video services are not being restricted to the rural environment. We can do video services to a patient's home um, with the appropriate technologies. We can do video services to an assisted living facility in, in the community. We can do video services to a nursing home in the community. Hospitals can have video services go from one hospital to another hospital, possibly even in the same community, where a consultant might be at one hospital and the patient might be at a different hospital. So all of these particular um, uh, options now have become available. What we don't know is when this uh, viral epidemic seems to wane. And when we move towards, maybe back towards something like what we were used to before, what will um, change with respect to these uh, Medicare um, stipulations? And so that's really an unknown. Um, many of us in the field of telemedicine believe that the federal government and a lot of healthcare providers really didn't um, appreciate the value of telemedicine. So I think that after all this settles and we start um, having face-to-face -face visits again, I, I'm predicting that we will have enhanced telemedicine um, opportunities that will exist. But what those are, uh, we don't know yet. One of the questions I was going to ask you was why it has been so difficult to utilize telemedicine since it this isn't a new technology. It's, it's obviously evolving, but it seems like the stipulations and the restrictions were a piece of it. But do you think then that this pandemic has forever changed the landscape of healthcare? And even though we don't know what it will look like when it's over, somehow we'll have more of this virtual healthcare? I do think there will be uh, long-term changes to the how the healthcare system delivers care even after um, this um, terrible crisis has passed. Um, a lot of healthcare systems didn't feel that telemedicine was their highest priority. They uh, felt that they were more um, pro more interested in focusing on other kinds of services that might have been more attracted to their business bottom line. And uh, so 
it was on uh, a, many healthcare systems lists, but it wasn't anywhere close to the top of the list. And it wasn't really being forced by anything because, you know, not sounding cynical, but it was just as easy for the patients to come to the clinic sites or come to the hospital. Um, they were still generating um, uh, billing and resources and all of that. So I don't, again, I don't want to sound cynical, but it wasn't a priority area. However, with the ch drastic changes that have occurred and how many clinics have closed and how many health systems have really changed their way to deliver services, now all of a sudden they're all forced to. And so everyone is getting into the game. Um, now, some of the ways by which those telemedicine services are being delivered are more secure and more private, and others are less secure and less private. So it's, it's very important that uh, patients understand when I'm getting involved with a telemedicine exchange, you know, how secure is this and how is my data being protected? How is my interaction with the patient being protected? Um, but what I will say is it's become a higher priority for large and medium and even small healthcare systems. So now everyone is trying to figure out how to do this. Um, now, one other big challenge that has always been present before COVID-19 uh, uh, viral pandemic and now is that technology has varying degrees of usability and ease of use. And some of the people that are on this podcast right now are thinking to themselves, I don't play around with all that technology nearly as much as, say, my grandson or my daughter or something. Um, however, as the telemedicine um, technologies have rolled out, they have become easier and easier and easier to use. And as the, pro the particular companies that are creating these products, they recognize it has to be easy for the provider. It has to be easy for the patient. So nowadays, if someone has any kind of a, um, a computer at home, uh, an, a, a tablet at home, a smartphone at home where there is uh, audio and there is video capacity. Nowadays, you can use those products or those particular um, pieces of equipment to link in. So you could be sitting in front of your smartphone and looking at your provider, your doctor or nurse practitioner, and they could see you the same way on their side. And the exchange can happen that way. You might say, well, what's the difference between that and just a telephone call? And what I'll say is that if there's any need for any kind of visual, that then is better than a telephone call. If there's a, a, a wound or a bruise or if someone is having changes, uh, let's say, for example, the telestroke programming that exists in many health systems. So a patient might be sitting there and they may now be having changes to their nervous system and their face and they might be having drooping and other things. All that can be visualized by a televideo um, call, which could not be done through a standard telephone call. But the technology does still have its quirks. And that's the issue is that sometimes patients and, and certainly sometimes providers need some help, need some guidance. And that's where if a telemedicine program exists with support, 
it's far better than one where someone is just picking up their phone and doing FaceTime. Um, it's, it is important for these health systems to have that kind of backup support and a plan B so that if, for example, the fancy video connection doesn't work, that you can default back to still having, say, a telephonic connection. Um, so lots of, lots of things are changing. And to get back to your question, the healthcare system, I don't think will ever look exactly the same as it looked, say, three months or six months ago. Um, and some of these new approaches will probably be kept because now the health system recognizes the value. The providers realize it wasn't that complicated after all. And the patients and their family members realize it wasn't that complicated after all. I really appreciate that that answer, Steve. And from the patient perspective, three key things that I'm taking away that I hope our audience also took away was that one, you should really speak with your insurance company beforehand to make sure there's either coverage or if not, then how much will you be paying out of pocket for it? Two, safety, safety of in, your information, your private health information and the data that is shared because you want to make sure that um, this isn't you know, vulnerable to someone stealing it. And then three, usability. How comfortable are you as a patient doing this? And do you have your own home technology uh, to, to be able to have these kinds of telemedicine visits? And on that last part, you, know, you being someone who's so experienced in telemedicine and tele-dementia care, you know, a question I have for you is, have you seen people who are older and less experienced with, a, with more, you know, chronic medical conditions, including dementia, do you see them having a harder time with telecare, telemedicine care, or becoming confused by the, the telemedicine uh, system? Certainly, there are always individuals that you try something and it just it doesn't feel right or it just doesn't work for them. However, what I will say is that um, as I started to use this um, technology more and more with my older patients, both with or without dementia, I was pleasantly surprised at how well things went. Um, and let me kind of make a couple of caveats. Sometimes it wasn't the patient themselves that was, uh, that, um, you know, was in the process of navigating the technology. In many cases, we might have a, a family member uh, who might be present with them in their home or at, uh, or if they're going to a clinic, there may be a nurse or a technician, a medical assistant who would be kind of walking them through and helping navigate that technology. But if they're in their home, um, you know, it might, it, you know, I've had, um, these televisits occur when it was a, an adult child or actually a grandchild or a neighbor, or in some cases we've had visiting nurses come in and they were the, what I will call the navigators of the technology. So the opportunities are pretty wide open for who might be that person that's ultimately pressing the buttons and or clicking the ons and the offs with the technology. Now, for many individuals who have become increasingly comfortable in using computers at home, uh, I had a televisit uh, last week with someone who was uh, in their upper 80s who lived alone and uh, was um, very uh, comfortable with 
clicking the little link that I sent to them through their email. And that link opened up their computer screen and the audio and the video for that exchange. And and that person and I were both in a virtual room and we went ahead with the visit. Uh, so um, it, sometimes it can be more tricky, but um, sometimes it can go very smoothly. And uh, we usually have a circle of, of support around us. So many patients don't have to assume they're going to be the ones that are going to have to navigate through all that technology. They may have a friend, a family member, or someone else who can be that um, navigator for them. I'm glad you said that because I didn't want older adults to think that they couldn't do it. And it seems like people are very capable, more capable than they give themselves credit. And so really, Steve, I want to end with two questions looking for looking to have advice from you for potential patients. You know, when thinking about calling for acute issues and this idea that potentially we can triage people to either stay home or go to the ER, you know, what kinds of things should people report to help the provider on the other end of this telemedicine visit to let them know you know, to help them figure out where do I belong at home or in the ER? Yeah, that's a very great question. And it actually can be a very complicated one, but I'm going to try to simplify the answer uh, to say that like with any kind of uh, exchange with a health provider, it's valuable if a person can to possibly jot down or to kind of put into order what it is that they want to convey, what is concerning them for that moment. Prepare just a little in advance. Um, I don't, I mean, if it's a, truly an emergency, you don't want to be going through this in your head before you call 911. But I'm saying is if it's not a true emergency, but, but it's still something that's very concerning, it's valuable to jot down uh, some questions that you or some items that you want to cover during that exchange, just like if it was a face-to-face exchange. Um, if a person has hearing uh, challenges or difficulties, it'd be very valuable for them to have a hearing aid or if they've got amplification system that might exist through a headset or through uh, some of the other ways by which we can um, amplify uh, hearing, make sure they have those tools available so that during the exchange, the, um, the audio portion goes more smoothly. If there are If there's information that the patient wants to share, like they've been monitoring their weights at home or monitoring their blood sugars at home, to have all that information in front of them before the televisit occurs, uh, because then that keeps them from having to kind of have to walk away from the visit to wander around the house and find that information. So preparation can be very valuable, and it will make the interaction go more smoothly. And then do you have any best practices for patients during the actual telemedicine visit? Anything that you think would help them have the most impactful and productive visit? Yes. So that's where um, thinking about things like um, sensory difficulties, um, as I mentioned before, the hearing or even the vision. Um, If there is uh, an issue where the physician, the nurse practitioner, the physician's assistant, or another health provider is communicating, but they it's not coming through clearly. It's not loud. It, it's muffled. The patient should right up front kind of 
that, you know, I know most of us are, are very, um, we want to be very polite and uh, we don't want to necessarily interrupt. But if they're not hearing the questioning clearly, they need to mention right away, I need, I can't hear you. And then technology adjustments might be necessary. Um, sometimes the connection is just a bad one. Uh, sometimes I'll tell people, get into a place where it's not such a distracted environment. So if you're in a home and there's others around you and there's TV that's kind of blasting in a room next door or even in the room you're in, find a more quiet place where you can have that interaction with the provider. Um, if there is, for example, you're in a room where the computer screen or the TV screen, whatever is you're able to see the provider in, is near a window and the glare is a problem, again, make the adjustment so that you can see that person on the screen. And ideally, they can see you well. Um, other things, uh, understand that um, uh, there's, like with any other health provider interaction, there's probably an allotted time. Many of us, when we're on the telephone, especially, you know, when we're having social interaction, we we don't necessarily realize that there's a finite window of time. But when we're in a telemedicine visit, just like if you're in a an appointment with a provider, understand you might have a set period of time, maybe valuable to understand how long will this occur for, you know, maybe even bring it up in the very beginning, you know, so the provider says, yes, we're going to visit over the next, say, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. So you have an idea. So you don't get cut off at the very end and still have a list of things that haven't been covered. That's wonderful advice. Thank you so much, Dave. And again, thank you for being on Dementia Matters. And we anticipate having you on in the future. Well, thank you also, Nate, for inviting me and uh, for the audience expressing interest in this topic. Please subscribe to Dementia Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Bonnie Nutkinson and edited by Bashir Adin. Our musical jingle is Organisms by Chad Crouch. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. That's dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.